Amen. Well, thank you for sticking with us through some chaos this morning. Man, I miss you, church. Uh, Even as we pause for prayer, how I long to hear your voices declaring the glory of our Christ and to join physically together as we should be. It's just another great reminder. Um, This is good. I'm glad that we have this. Um, This is better than having nothing, uh, but this is not. This is not what it ought to be. This is not what we long for. This is not the gathering of the church uh, in all that it should be. Um, but we will continue uh, for the time being, uh, and, and uh, we will pray um, that that will change soon. And, uh, and things, are, things are looking optimistic, and, uh, and I hope we can get to uh, gather here again soon. Uh, well, the North American, the average North American, uh, is exposed between 4,000 and 10,000 advertisements every single day. You probably waited past a few just getting to this service this morning. Um, on the internet, on, on television, radio, billboards, signs, t-shirts, um, it's everywhere. We are constantly bombarded, and every single one of those ads has the same essential goal, and that is to sow in your heart seeds of discontent. Discontent in your clothes, discontent in your body, discontent in the way that people perceive you, discontentment in in every sphere of life. Because if you're discontent with with who you are and what you have, you will passionately pursue whatever you believe uh, will fill whatever it is that you see that you're lacking. And the risk of sounding a little fanatical, we need to recognize that for what it is. It is a great example of spiritual warfare raging in our world. Not that... Advertising executives and big companies, CEOs, are, are demon-possessed or are somehow cavorting with Satan to hatch these evil schemes. But, but rather, uh, this is the flow, the pressure of this world and this worldly system, um, which is in darkness and under the rule of the prince of darkness and working against the kingdom of God, working consistently and viciously to keep our eyes fixed on the things of this world to keep our hearts constantly seeking satisfaction here. It's the desires of the flesh in us, ignited by the world and intensified by Satan. And so discontentment is this deadly, deadly disease, um, even as believers. Uh, It will drive a wedge in your relationship with the Lord. It will steal your joy. It will destroy your witness to to those around you and and leave you miserable. Discontentment is the root out from which any number of sins springs forth, not only coveting and lusting and grumbling and complaining, but bitterness, anger, selfishness, disunity, division, idolatry. It keeps us back from, from proper prayer with thanksgiving and worship. And embedded at its root is a kind of blasphemy. Saying to the Lord, you have not fairly governed your universe. You have wronged me. I deserve better than what you have given me, God. I know better how to rule this universe than you do. 
And it's pervasive. The effects of discontentment. Puritan Thomas Boston says this, As a few drops of gall will embitter a cup of wine, and a few drops of ink will blacken the cup of the clearest liquor, so discontent upon one ground embitters and blackens all other enjoyments. It's poison in our hearts that spreads through every part of who we are. It's easy to get discontent, particularly in this season when uh, a number of things have been taken away from us, when life is not going the way that we hoped it would, our plans have been canceled, some of us, uh, our jobs have been lost um, or significantly cut back. It's hard, and discontentment presses in. Sadly, discontentment is even common among believers. It subtly works its roots into our hearts and it pulls our eyes down off of the Lord and onto this world, first in in just little glances, but then in longer and lingering looks. We feel it. We fight it. And it's not a modern problem only. Back in the 1600s, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote what is now considered a classic, the, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, he called it. The rare jewel. How much more today? And of course, the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 7 that it was, the, it was the 10th commandment. It was the commandment, do not covet, that just uncovered all kinds of sin in his heart. So it ought to be a great encouragement to us. As we read from Paul years later in Philippians 4, that he had learned the secret of contentment. Wow, that's good news. He wasn't born with it. Uh, It wasn't given to him in some mystical, magical way outside of his control. He learned it. And and that means there's hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. That we might also learn the secret of contentment. That we might come into possession of this rare and precious jewel. Man, what a great hope. Let's, Let's... Turn in our Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Just encourage you, um, take out your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, get up and go get it. You you will not miss anything in the next few minutes of finding your Bible that is more important than having your Bible open in front of you. Um, It's all about God's Word. Uh, I'll tell you what, this struggle for contentment is real in me. And so as I walk through this text, um, I have been wrestling with me all week, and God has been teaching me. And so I'm just passing on to you what God has been saying to me. And, uh, and so I don't come with great wisdom. Uh, I come with great authority in God's Word. Um, so I want you to have that open in front of you. Um, Philippians 4, we're going to look at verses uh, 10 through 13. And as I mentioned last week, um, Paul has, has kind of ended the body of his letter, the main teaching section kind of wrapped up there uh, in verse 9. And, uh, and now he's, he's kind of closing out his letter. He's, he's kind of doing, uh, doing his duty, doing what's proper. He's thanking them for this gift. And uh, so if you remember, um, the Philippian church had sent uh, Epaphroditus carrying this gift of, of money for Paul. And uh, Epaphroditus was sick some point along the journey, almost died. And, and so now Paul's sending him home again, back to his friends and his family. And, and along with him, he's sending this letter that we now have today. And, and so um, 
he's, he's wrapped up this letter, but now as he's, he's kind of closing it, these are kind of the formalities. He's saying, thank you for this gift. But it's pretty obvious that he just can't help but overflow with teaching for them, leading them, showing them God's great truths. Um, and, and he's just finished this extended section talking about anxiety and worry, and, and, and he's now thanking them for their gift, and he just naturally takes this opportunity to show them what's, what's going on in his heart to the effect that, that he's grateful for this gift, but, but he was not discontent, potentially leading to anxiety um, without it. And so let's look and see this, this secret of Christ-centered contentment. Let me read these verses for us um, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Would you pray with me? Father, you know our hearts. You know how divided and distracted we are, how pulled we are in a thousand directions after the things of this world that promise to give us contentment, that promise to give us joy. And God, we are weak. Help us. God, you know um, that we struggle with discontentment. You know those who are listening right now uh, who are just in the middle of discontentment. Life has not gone the way they hoped it would. Their plans are not going the way they intended. And it's hard. Lord, would this morning's text just be balm for their soul? Lord, would you open our eyes to see the glory of Christ, to find lasting contentment, true Christ-centered contentment. Oh God, that we as a people would learn the secret of contentment this morning and we might walk in it. To the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. So the secret of contentment. And you might read that and think, well, that's fine to say. Paul says that he's found the secret of contentment, but he doesn't tell us what it is. And it's true, he doesn't say, here, this is it, this is the secret of contentment. Rather, what he's doing is showing himself as the living, breathing example of contentment. And so we need only to look at his example and what it is that he's doing as he lives out contentment. And the first thing we see here is that contentment comes in Christ-centered relationships. This first phrase um, just makes, makes me chuckle. It comes up again. He's been telling them constantly, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And now he says, hey, I rejoiced in the Lord. Uh, I, I live out what I command. Um, I'm doing it too. I'm rejoicing the Lord greatly now that at length you've revived your concern for me. And, and he's talking about this gift that they sent him. This gift of, of money to provide for him. 
And yet you can see he's kind of self-conscious as he writes this. He can tell, boy, I don't want them to take that the wrong way, um, as if I'm scolding them for, for neglecting me in this kind of meantime. Uh, and, and so he says, I understand um, that, you, that, you, that you just had no opportunity to show your concern. You, I know you've been concerned for me all along, um, but now you've revived. That, that word revived is, is, is a, a horticultural term. It's like it's come to bloom again. It's flowered again. But here's the strange thing about this verse. Notice how Christ gets right in the middle of their relationship. They served Paul. They did something directly for him in caring for him, and that causes Paul to rejoice in the Lord. Why doesn't he say, I rejoice in you? I'm grateful to you for your concern for me. Well, Because his relationship is centered on Christ. He sees everything through that lens. Um, Christ is right in the middle of all of Paul's relationships. And so as their concern for Paul, um, Paul sees that not as their gift to him, but as Christ's gift to him through them. Right? It's Christ's kindness to him. You were kind to me and I rejoiced in the Lord. And Paul operates the same way. Um, with those who are not kind toward him. Uh, if you look at First Timothy, or sorry, 2 Timothy 4, 14, um, he says, This Alexander the coppersmith did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Do you see it? So when people do him good, he rejoices in the Lord. And when people do him harm, he says, Hey, the Lord will deal with you. The Lord will repay you. That, the Lord will make that right. He sees everything that comes to him as coming to him through Christ. And that just gives him amazing freedom. When people hurt him, he trusts in the Lord. The Lord will judge. I don't need to be bitter. I don't need to return fire. I don't need to balance the scales and get my justice. God will bring the justice. That's not for me. And at the same time, he's seeing God's hand in it, Christ's hand sovereignly over it, that, that even these things, though you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, that he's going to be working through these things in my life, that Christ has a plan for it. It also gives him freedom when he's blessed by relationships. It gives him freedom in, in good relationships. He thanks the Lord. He sees Christ at work through them. It's his goodness through them. And so he's not relying directly on these people, right? He's not looking to them for his satisfaction, for his joy. His hope is not in them. And so they don't have as much opportunity to crush him, to let him down. He sees his hope in Christ. And then I love this. He sees Christ's work in them. Do you see that? He's not saying, I rejoiced in your gift. He's not saying, I rejoiced in how it affected me. He says, I rejoice that your concern revived again. I rejoice of what's happening in your heart. And I maybe wouldn't make too much of that, except if you look just down to verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's rejoicing in his friends as he sees Christ at work in them. That's what gives him hope and joy in his relationships. He's not primarily thinking, uh, is this person 
kind to me? Is this person uh, the kind, treat me the way I want to be treated? He's primarily thinking, how was Christ at work in their life? What do I see Jesus doing in them? And that's what gives him joy. The gospel is shaping um, their thinking and their living. Do we see our relationships through that kind of lens? Do we have Christ at the center of it? Every blessing of relationship and every trial of relationships comes to me watched over by Christ, mediated through the one relationship that I can absolutely trust. The one relationship that I know will never let me down because guess what? People will let you down. They will. They'll hurt you. Even the best relationships will never give you that firm foundation, that, that perfect sense of affirmation and love that you so desire. It, it won't be there. Human relationships will always leave you discontent, always. And one of the fastest ways to destroy a relationship uh, is to lean that heavily on someone else, to make that person the source of your joy and your affirmation and your identity more than a few marriages have been destroyed by that very thing. Contentment in relationships, solid, true, unshakable contentment only happens when Christ is the source of your joy. When your, your anchor and fountain is in him and he's at the center of all of it. And so we, we partner together as friends rejoicing in what Christ is doing in one another's lives and encouraging that. And as people are, are good and kind to me and bless me, I rejoice in Christ's work in them. And when people hurt me and let me down, um, I say, hey, the Lord will be at work in you. The Lord will settle that score. It, I, I don't need to pay back. I don't need to be embittered and, and hurt by that. Um, I trust Christ. So it starts with these, these Christ-centered relationships. And then secondly, contentment comes through Christ-centered need. Look at uh, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Similar to verse 10, um, Paul is guarding against um, kind of this misunderstanding here. He's saying, I'm glad that at last you've revived your concern for me. I know that you were always concerned. I'm not accusing you of that. Um, and then he says, um, and, and it's also not that I'm speaking of being in need. And what an odd thing for him to say. Think about it. Where's Paul at? He's a Roman prisoner, probably under house arrest in a rented house in Rome, guarded by a Roman soldier, unable to leave his house, but responsible for his own expenses. I dare say he did have need. But he follows that up, explaining, not that I'm speaking of being in need, and you would expect him to say, uh, because I have plenty of money, right? That's the opposite. Not that I'm in need, I have lots. But that's not what he says. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for because I have learned to be content in whatever situation. So it's not that, it's not that he didn't have need. 
But he was not highlighting that need. He's not focused on that need because he's content. And his contentment uh, is not contingent on his circumstances. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And he repeats himself, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, I wouldn't make too much of this, but it is interesting. Um, It's an active verb. I know how to abound. That's what Paul was doing. I know how how to do that. And then it's a passive verb saying, I know how to be brought low. Sometimes he got knocked down. And I think implicitly there, um, he's saying it's not wrong to, to, to get a job, to, to seek to, to make money, to do well in business. But neither is that the source of his contentment. He's content regardless of what he has. He's content in hunger and in plenty, and that's an interesting thing to notice, isn't it? When we speak of being content... When we talk about someone who, who is content or someone who needs to learn contentment, what are we talking about? We're talking about someone who has little. They, they need to be satisfied with that, right? We see contentment as, as the poor man's problem. Contentment has to be learned when there's a lack of finances, a lack of possessions. But notice, Paul does not only see poverty as a threat to his contentment, but also riches. Stop and chew on that for a minute. He says near the end of verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. Plenty is a potential enemy that he has learned to face. Are you ready for plenty that way? Do we go into into abundant times ready for battle? When's the last time you looked at having plenty and thought, that's a threat to my happiness. That's dangerous for me. You were worried about having too much and and becoming discontent. That seems totally backwards to us. So often Christianity is skewed. The blessing of God is is skewed. and, And we believe that we can be content because God will provide financially. And and I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. Don't, don't, don't shirk this burden off too quickly. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about the average North American believer. We say, I am content. I trust God. He will not let me starve. I trust God. He won't let me go broke. He will always give me enough. Do you know that? Really? I, Many Christians before you have starved to death. Many Christians have come to that place of not having food to put on the table for their children. What makes you special? Is that really solid ground for your contentment to trust that God will put money in your bank account? Maybe just a little, just enough. I know I'll get by. That's not what Paul's contentment is based in. Not where he goes. Look at what he had contentment. He had contentment when he was hungry. And there was threat to his contentment when he had plenty. And even here, with their gift, as he's rejoicing in the Lord for that, sure, he has money now to to buy food as he awaits his execution. 
and he's content. Because he understands what true need really is. He sees his need in a a way radically different from what we so often look at. When money is tight and we're working over the budget with our spouse, this is a common conversation, right? What are wants and what are needs? Wants can be cut. Wants can come and go. Wants aren't going to make it when money is tight. But needs, these are things we have to cover. We have to have these things. And so we, we, we sit down and we work this through and there might be some squabble between husbands and wives. Um, in my world, um, Heinz ketchup is a need. Not French's, not some other abomination. It's Heinz ketchup. Okay, so when we were in seminary and scraping by, um, we saved money by buying the large can of Heinz ketchup and opening that and pouring it out into bottles um, because Heinz ketchup is in need. Facial toner? I don't even know what that does. That's not a need. We don't need facial toner. But you sit down with Paul and you get out your pad of paper and pen and you draw a line down the middle and you write on one side wants and the other side needs and you say, okay, Paul, fill it out. What goes in what category? How, what would he say? What would he put in there? Well, I'll tell you what he would put in there, and it's easy because he already told us he would take every single line item out of your budget and he would put it over on the one side and he would scratch out the word want and he would write in rubbish. And then in big, bold marker, in large letters, he would write under the need category to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's his need. Paul wasn't content because he could be satisfied with little, because he had lowered the bar of what made him feel okay. He he was content because he had freed himself from this world altogether. His contentment was in Christ because he saw clearly I'm a sinner who deserves hell, who deserves the experience of God's wrath into eternity. And Christ paid that penalty. He wiped it clean on the cross and he purchased for me infinite joy received by faith and faith alone. What else could I possibly want? And he sees this this life as being so short and so small compared to the the grandeur and the glory of eternity. It doesn't even match up. It's not even worthy to be compared with what awaits us. The trials, the struggles here, even at their worst, are just nothing compared to the glory of eternity. What I need is Christ. Take the whole world and just Give me Jesus. And so, whether it's times of physical need or physical abundance, his focus is on Christ. And both in need and in plenty, there is a threat to his focus on Christ. Right? A full bank account as well as an empty one can draw you away from clinging to Christ. So I don't really care which it is. My bank account is full or empty. If my stomach is full or empty, what I need is Jesus. 
That's the secret. That's the secret of contentment. It's Christ. Now, I don't want to push this too far. Matthew 6, 25 26, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, uh, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So, so our Father loves us. He knows our physical needs. He delights to provide for us. But we need perspective. We need to back up in Matthew 6. Just a, just a few verses before that, the last thing that he said as a, as a foundation for that passage is Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's talking about contentment in eternal things. Therefore, do not be anxious Because of that, you can trust God to provide the the food, the clothing that you need. Because primarily my life does not consist of worldly things because those things don't rule my heart. Because my treasure is in heaven. So I'm not anxious about the Lord's provision here. It's secondary. That's not my ultimate goal. And, and, And only then can we say with Job, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There it is. right? Job goes so far as as saying, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. He takes away my life. Takes away everything I have in this world, yet I will hope in him. He is the source of my joy. And and that's totally consistent with verses like Romans 8.32, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Well, what all things is He referring to? Obviously, it doesn't mean a Ferrari, um, or maybe they're just a little behind on their deliveries because I haven't got mine yet. Um, obviously, it doesn't mean perfect health. I know a lot of believers who struggle and, and suffer with health. Is it a house? Three square meals a day, nice clothes, a a winter getaway to somewhere warm. What exactly is it that God is going to give us along with Christ? Well, it's all things pertaining to our salvation. It's everything we need to draw closer to Christ that we might have Him. That we might gain eternity in His grace. That's what all things is talking about. All things for our eternal good. And maybe one of those all things for your good would be a season of leanness, a season of hunger, a season of an empty bank account that God would use to to cultivate a, a hope and a desire for Christ in a new way. That it would be as... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, a light and 
momentary affliction earning for you a weight of eternal glory. So don't let the foundation of your contentment be misled. I'm content because God will give me enough. I can be satisfied in a small house and satisfied in a, in a small paycheck. But rather, even if God chooses to withhold everything that this world has to offer, even if he takes away my very life, I trust in him. I know that in it, he will be giving me more of Christ. And get this, I mean, I know you feel this because I feel this. Does that just mean we're lowering the bar, right? I'm satisfied without those things. Am I, am, I, am I just lowering the bar of my satisfaction? No. No, we're raising the bar. Christ is greater. He is more. He is the only thing that satisfies. We're elevating our hope and trusting God for an eternal joy rather than a deceitful, perishable joy in this world. And consequently, we are trusting him for that which he has actually promised to give those who love him. Rejoicing in the Lord seeing this closer, deeper, most, more personal walk with him leading to an eternity with him as that pearl of great price that, that so outshines, so supersedes every other thing. It's Matthew 13, 44, one of my favorite verses. This man who, who stumbles across the treasure in the field and he goes home and he sells everything he has to get the treasure. He's not making a sacrifice. He's getting the treasure. It's worth more. It's greater. He's just seeing clearly. That's the secret of contentment. When Christ is our treasure. And you see how that glorifies Christ? You see it would rob Christ of his glory if we say, I trust God because he will give me money. I trust God because he will provide me a job. That doesn't glorify Christ. And, and, and the world looks at that and goes, okay, um, that makes sense. If God gives me those things, then what glorifies Christ is we say, I trust God, I treasure Christ, even if he gives me none of those things, he's what I want. That's what lifts him high, and that is how we come to this absolute bomb-proof contentment. 1 Corinthians 7, I think, gives us a, a kind of a helpful, on-the-ground, practical look. What does this look like day in and day out? It's a life that's, that's detached, right? Listen to this. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. What's he saying? This life is short. We're not here for long. Jesus is coming back. This is not our home. We're sojourners. We're travelers through. This is just a cheap flea bag motel on the way. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So don't overshoot this. He says, hey, some of you are going to have wives. Some of you are going to have mourning in this world. And you mourn losses in this world. And you'll be rejoicing in the, in the good things of this world. And you're going to buy things in this world. And you're going to have dealings in this world. But all the time as you do these things, we're doing them just that one step detached. I'm buying stuff, but you know what? I don't live like I own it. Right? 
I'm dealing with this world, but I live as if I don't have dealings with it because this is not where my heart is because my heart is wrapped up in Christ. Um, Why? Because he ends saying this world is passing away. It's temporary. It won't last. But then down in in verse 35 of chapter 7, he says, uh, for I say this for your benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what he's after. That's our hope. That's our goal. Our contentment is in this undivided devotion to the Lord. Lord, unite my heart. I might run in your commandments. That's what we're after. To be content in him and him alone. So contentment comes through through these Christ-centered relationships. It comes through a Christ-centered understanding of what it is that we truly need in him. And then finally, through Christ-centered striving. This Christ-centered striving. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There it is. There it is. There's the verse that we love. This is the one off of our coffee mugs and our, and our t-shirts, the one that we, that we quote in the locker room and going into business meetings. This, this, is a, this is a favorite. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's the problem. Sorry. You knew it was coming, right? We got to do this. D.A. Carson puts it this way. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. (laughs) Who comes up with this stuff, right? Um, But it's good. It's really good. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Let me unpack that for you. A text, a small portion of Scripture. We look at God's Word and we take one little piece without a context. We rip it out of the verses surrounding it that give it meaning and confines and, and direction, and it becomes a pretext. It becomes wrongful justification. It becomes a faulty logic, a faulty confidence for a proof text to to use that verse out of context to try to prove something that Scripture doesn't actually teach. You see it? A text without a context is just a pretext for a proof text. You can do all kinds of things. I'm sorry, this verse has nothing to do with football. This verse has nothing to do with with helping little Johnny get through his his piano recital. Why is it Johnny? Even I pick on Johnny now. Man, poor Johnny. Uh, This is wrongly used. You're not omnipotent to do literally anything because Christ strengthens you, right? We just need to admit that. Like, if we're going to use this verse wrongly, let's take it all the way. Why Why do we minimize it down to football games and business meetings? If I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I'm going to fly, right? Like, let's, let's think bigger here. But this text does have a context. It does have parameters. And when Paul says all things, he's already explained what he means by that. He's already told us what all things is. And so we can just, we, we can't just, just rip this out of its context and, and put it here and put it there and use it for all kinds of different things. The NIV is actually really helpful in the way that they translate it. They say, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's what Paul's saying. 
I found the secret to contentment. I can be content in plenty and scarcity and hunger and abundance. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what this verse means. That's how it ought to be used. It's, it's used in my heart, set on Christ in contentment in spite of any and every circumstance. In spite of all things that come my way, I can be content in Christ. I lost my job, but I will trust Christ and be content in him. And I can because Christ strengthens me. Maybe we can bring it back to football. We just lost the Super Bowl. And our hopes and dreams are crushed. My whole career has come to an end, but I will be content and rejoice in Christ because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or equally valid, we won the Super Bowl. I'm now a a superstar and, and I have millions of dollars, but I will not let my pride be rooted in that. I will not let that define me. I will not let this money go to my head and take my eyes off of Christ. No, I walk in humility and contentment in Christ and count those things as rubbish and I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. That's what this is about. It's about a heart of contentment in Christ. The language that he uses is actually really interesting. Um, He says in verse 11 um, that he had learned in whatever situation to be content. And that word content um, just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's this strange word. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, Literally, it means self-ruled. And right away you go, is that the right word, Paul? Is that what you were after? I can be self-ruled? Um... And it's not used anywhere in the New Testament, but you know where it's constantly used? All through the philosophers of Paul's day. It it was a centerpiece in Plato and Aristotle and and this guy named Seneca. And and what they promoted was uh, a philosophy called Stoicism. And we still use the word stoic that way, right? Someone who's unmoved, they're not phased by this or that. You can kind of see the overlap with with this idea of contentment. That's the heart of of Stoic philosophy. Um, The Stoic doctrine is is summarized this way, um, that man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. So there it is. Um, Self-ruled, sufficient in himself and unmoved by the things that come his way. He just takes it in stride. And so the philosopher Seneca, um, who was actually teaching at the same time as Paul, um, he was Nero's tutor and had massive influence over Nero and his reign. Um, he wrote this. He said, The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. And so here's what Paul's doing. He's stealing from them. He's taking their word and saying, Oh, you guys value contentment. You think contentment is this great and honorable thing in your culture? Um, I have that too. I am also content, as you so highly value. But then verse 13 comes as this hammer that that shows that his contentment is something radically different from theirs. That his contentment is radically Christian contentment. He's not saying, as they were, I am sufficient. I am strong enough in myself. I am unique and special. I am enough. No, he's He's saying, I'm content in Christ. I'm not enough. 
I'm not strong enough. I'm not, I'm not able by the power of my own will to, to, to withstand all circumstances, but Christ is, and my hope is in him. And by the way, the, the Greek word there in, in verse 13, um, translated through, uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, it's actually the same word that's translated in, all the way through um, these in Christ passages in Philippians. And so I just want to invite you, just track with me here, and, and let's just lay this out. Chapter 1, verse 1. The saints in Christ Jesus. Down to verse 14. Um, the other brothers had become confident in the Lord. Down further uh, to chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, verse 5, uh, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you. Verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Into verse three or chapter 3, verse 1, finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Verse 3, we glory in Christ Jesus. Down to verse 8, beginning of verse 9. He says that, that I count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 1, my brothers stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And verse uh, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 7, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And then he comes finally to verse 13, I can do all things through or in him who strengthens me. He's constantly been pointing them back. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. Our identity as saints is in Christ. Our encouragement is in Christ. The, the mind, the, the thinking that we need is in Christ. Our hope, our trust, our joy, our goal for eternity, it's all in Christ. Our, our unity and fellowship together, our joy and peace, it's in Christ. And so our contentment is wrapped up in Christ. It's in Him. It's only in Him, strengthened uh, in the, the unity that we have being embedded in Christ as believers. Don't for a second think that you can do this on your own. That you, that you need to just set your mind to it, that you need to, to, to look inside yourself and be, be self-sufficient, be self-ruled. It's all about being Christ-sufficient, Christ-ruled. It's Christ-centered striving. And yet, we could go the other way as well, couldn't we? It's so easy to, to sit back and say, well, here I am in Christ, waiting for God to give me contentment as I grumble away. It hasn't happened yet, clearly, because I'm still miserable. And we just wait as if God will do it some mysterious way. It's nothing to do with me. No, 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 no. Now look again. Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is not passive in this. 
He's not sitting back waiting for it. He is actively thinking, employing his mind, training his mind. Don't think like that, Paul. Think like this. Drag it over here. This is who I am. Learning to grow in it. And it's him who does it. I do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally to me, but I've learned to fight and strive and through in Christ who strengthens me, I can do it. There's this partnership between us and God in our Christian growth. Um, Paul uses this great example talking about the the church on a larger scale. Uh, He he says in 1 Corinthians 3, um, I planted and, and Apollos watered and God gave the growth. Right? And so neither Paul or Apollos or anything, but God who gave the growth, and yet you see them at work in the church. And, and, and that's true in the church as a whole. Uh, and it's also a great analogy of what happens in our own lives. God is the one who gives the growth. God is the one who, who brings the miracle of, of transforming my heart and, and changing me. But he expects us to be planting and watering and working to engage that, to, to lay out those things that he will then take and use to perform that miracle. It's back to, to Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work it out. Go after it. Strive for it. Because it's God who's working in you to, to make it happen. Christ is strengthening you for contentment, for peace, for rest in him. He's given you every resource that you need. It's yours in Christ Jesus. And he's prepared. He's ready to to work that miracle in your heart. So step into it. It'll take work. It'll take intentionally training your mind. I need to think differently about this. I need to kill those thoughts and desires and focus my heart on on Christ. Work it out in faith, fixing your mind on Him. Fighting to to think about our relationships as, as having Christ in the center. Fighting to see them through the lens of Christ's work in me and in them. Being on my guard against facing both abundance and need. Setting my heart on Christ no matter what. Seeing him as the greatest need that supersedes everything else. My greatest joy in him. He is my ultimate good. And we do it. Walking, trusting, leaning on Christ. Who is giving and will give you the strength, the power. To to turn your striving into reality, working hard in those things, knowing, believing that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Let's pray.